Thanks to Kevin. Thanks to the guys that run sound and put things up on the board. The board. <laughs> I'm old school. Scream. I've been around Calvary Baptist Church a long time since Max and Linda Shell were in the nursery. <laughs> Not quite. I came here as a college student, a brand new Christian in 1973. Met some folks uh, from my old stomping ground, Signal Mountain, Tennessee today. Good to see you guys. But I came here, I graduated from high school in Chattanooga and came to UT, didn't know Christ, had no interest in knowing him. I wanted to party. I wanted to have fun. That was my goal in life. And uh, God had another plan, thanks to him. And uh, when I was 21, I trusted Christ. And a fraternity brother invited me to come to Calvary Baptist Church. And I began to grow in my faith. And I uh, was here for two years and left for 15 and came back as the children's pastor. And then was here for 17 years. Becky and I raised our kids had a part in raising some of you, helping you know the Lord. And then we left for eight years, and I was in Mississippi. We were in Mississippi and came back about a year ago. It reminded me of the, the old Three Stooges when one of them would throw something out the window, turn around, and he would come back in the window and hit him in the head. That's kind of like me getting thrown out and coming back in the window. But here I am. But I do say that now after following the Lord uh, for... 40-something years and uh, being in Christian ministry for more than 40 years and now getting to serve as just one of the guys. It is a it, all praise to Jesus Christ that we have endured to this point. And it's our hope that he who is faithful will keep us faithful to the end. Funny, I, John Williams and I sometimes get together for coffee and just sharing and and I keep bringing up stuff about, I found this in the, old, in the Psalms about old guys. And he says, you're kind of onto this old guy thing. And I, yeah, I am, because I are one. But the Lord has been faithful. I want to uh, share with you from the scripture. Would I just disconnect something? <clears throat> I want to ask the question and then give some study in the scripture together to the question, what's driving you? What is it that's your chief ambition? What motivates you? What moves your actions? In other words, what's your heart? The scripture says that out of the heart flow the issues of life. Out of the heart come our words. Out of the heart come our actions. It's what's on the inside. Kids sang about that just a minute ago. The inside story. What is on the inside? What is driving us? And we're going to look at two men in scripture. Saul the Old Testament Saul, and David. You could not find two men more different in what drove them and what motivated them. And it serves as a good reminder what the danger is. We see that in Saul. But what the glorious possibility is in David. Interesting, the things that drive cars. I had a, I had a buddy in Mississippi who had a car dealership, a used car dealership, and he got cars from all over the country. He, was, he, he mostly did SUVs, trucks, Mississippi, about half or three-fourths of the vehicles are trucks or SUVs. I had to get one to, be, to get my driver's license. I got a pickup truck, still drive it. But at the time, I was, when we moved there, I was, had a, a, a Toyota Camry. 
One thing you say about a Camry is it's a family man's car. This particular car had a 2.2 liter four-cylinder engine. The thing you might say about it, it was reliable. It, it was a good car, I'm telling you. It was a good car. No slam on Toyota Camrys. But um, it, it, it was slow getting started, you know. It just, just didn't accelerate very quickly. And one day my buddy, Keith Smith, called and said, no, he didn't call me. He told me at church. He said, got a car and you might like to test drive. It's a 6.0 liter GTO. You want to, it's got a six-speed stick shift. You want to come out and test drive it. I know you're not going to buy it. You want to just drive it for fun? <laughs> I said, I don't think I'm mature enough. But I went anyway. What happened to me that day that I went out there to the car lot out on Highway 98, a nice four-lane highway with divided highway. You know, it was a little bit wet. It had been raining. But yeah, I went anyway, and so we got in. He got in the passenger seat. I got in the driver's side. And it started up. That's not the sound that a 2.2-liter Toyota Camry makes. It goes. But this one went. So we pull out of the parking lot, and I thought, I don't want to be crazy. I don't want to scare my buddy. So I started. And I got in a second, and I hit it. He said, you can give it a little bit more than that. And because it was wet, the, the back end is doing this thing, you know. And, I, and I'm gritting my teeth. And I'm winding the gears. He said, okay, okay, okay. I probably got to 60, 60, 65, which is about the speed limit. I just got there in a big hurry. And then we headed on down, went about a mile or two down and came back and did the same thing. Got up to a stoplight and hit it hard and got back. And I went, wow, that's fun. I th- he, didn't, he didn't invite me back to test, to test drive any more fast cars. What a difference. A family man Camry and a 6.0 liter six-speed GTO driven by two very different engines and therefore, what came out of those engines and of what they produced was very different. In a similar way, our heart is like the engine. It motivates us. It drives us. It moves us. But what kind of heart do we have? And the reality is we are like the Prius. I hate to tell some of you guys that, but we're like a Prius. We're hybrid. We have two different possible sources of motivation, two different energy sources, two different hearts that can drive us. One is our flesh, that part of us that longs to exalt me, (laughs) that wants my way, my pleasure, my will be done, and wants me, and then your heart wants you to be honored above all things. There's a different heart, a part of us, if we are believers in Christ, that longs to see, as we've sung, it's not up there anymore, as we've sung, God and God alone, we want him to be exalted. We want to tell of his greatness, his glory. We want to proclaim what he has done for us. We want his will to be accomplished. We want, as I talked with a brother this morning, just as we were chatting in the back of the sanctuary, we want to know him above everything else. We want to know him better. Those are the two possible motivations, I think, that drive a human being, the glory of God or the glory of self. 
And so we're going to look at the clash between those two engines, those two driving forces in the heart of a human being, every human being, by looking at two different people, Saul and David. So I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Some of you are still working on reading through the Bible in a year, and if you're like me, I'm almost caught up. Uh, uh, finish 1 Samuel. But the whole book of Samuel, once you come to Sam, Saul and David, you see this incredible difference in these two men. How one, Saul, was driven by selfish ambition above all things. He started well, but it didn't last and he ended up a man eaten up with the cancer of a desire to exalt himself. And David, on the other hand, a man who, though he had his failures, was driven, motivated by a heart for God. So let's consider, first of all, Saul, driven by selfish ambition. In other words, it's all about me. For Saul and all of us who are driven by that same selfish ambition. So... Follow along as I read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 12. Uh, background of the story, the Lord had appointed Saul king of Israel. And, his, and, and then after some time, he said, I'm sending you on a job. I, it is time for me to bring judgment on, judgment on the Amalekites. They had been at war with Israel from the time Israel came out of Egypt. And God, in his sovereign choice, said, now is the time I'm going to bring judgment on the Amalekites. And Saul, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and destroy them and destroy all that they have. Sounds severe, but that's what they had done to Israel on occasions. And God says, okay, now it's my choice. As God, he can say when it's time to judge. He said, Saul, you're my instrument of judgment. Go and destroy them all. And Saul went and fought and killed everybody except for the king. He wanted a trophy. And he destroyed all the stuff except for the really nice stuff that he kept and his soldiers kept. And then it says in chapter 15, verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, the judge, the prophet, and he said, I am grieved that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled. He loved this guy, Saul. He had seen him at the beginning. He did well. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor. And he's turned and gone down to Gilgal. There you see it. Saul didn't obey God's instructions. He was half halfway obedient. He did some of what God did, but he thought he had a better plan. God's instructions didn't seem to make sense or didn't seem to be in keeping with what he wanted to do. So he partly obeyed. And God says, because of that, he's turned away from me. God's decision was he's not going to be king anymore. And yet notice what Saul thought about what he had done. He's erected a monument in his own honor. Why do, why do people erect monuments? So that somebody or something will be remembered for a long time. And Saul was so pleased with himself 
for doing what he had done, defeating the Amalekites, that he built an, a monument in his own honor. Why? So that everybody would be remembering him. So that for maybe generations to come, they'll go, Saul's the guy that finally beat those Amalekites. The thing that he was so pleased with, God was very displeased with. Why was Saul so pleased with himself that after disobeying God, he would erect a monument in his own honor? I think it was this. He got what he wanted most. He got what he wanted most. Let me tell you what I mean. That's, look at chapter 15, verse 24 and 25, Saul goes and finds, I mean, Samuel goes and finds Saul. And he rebukes him for partly obeying, for really disobeying the Lord. You disobeyed God's command. Oh, but Saul says, the reason we did is that, we, that was good stuff. There's sheep and oxen, nice things. We wanted to sacrifice them to the Lord. I think he came up with that idea on the fly when he saw Samuel. He goes, oh, man, I'm busted. Well, it's, we're going to sacrifice it. And Samuel says, God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your obedience. And then in verse 24, Saul lets the cat out of the bag, so to speak. Why did he do it? Why didn't he obey, why didn't he obey God completely? Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Was he afraid they were going to beat him up, kill him? I don't think so. He was afraid they wouldn't like him. See, he built a monument in his own honor because he wanted fame. He gave in to the people because he wanted popularity, plain and simple. He wanted people to approve him. He wanted people to like him. He wanted the people to say, Saul, you're a great king and a great warrior. Look at the stuff you let us keep. He had a choice to make. Am I going to obey what God had clearly just recently said? He hadn't forgotten. He knew what God had said. Clear as can be. But the people wanted something else, and he had to make a choice. Who, whose opinion mattered most? For Saul, it was people. And so he made that choice because that's what he wanted more than anything. And I, and I am warned by this because I know my own heart. That is one of my greatest weaknesses, my greatest temptations. To love the praise of people. To want to be popular. To want to be liked. And I suspect that most, if not all of us, struggle. Maybe we struggle tremendously with that temptation to be liked, to have people approve us. And so we don't say what we ought to say. We don't do what we ought to do because somebody might disapprove of us. And we give no thought, like Saul gave no thought, what will, what will bring about God's well done? Saul was driven by the the lust for fame, the lust for popularity. There's one other thing. He says in verse 20, Now I beg you, forgive me. For worship the Lord. Oh, good. Saul's repenting. He realizes he's, he's done wrong, and he's going to make things right. 
not so easy, not so fast. Because you look down at verse 30 and 31. Saul, Samuel, sorry, the two words that both begin with S, tripping me up. Samuel says, I'm not going to go worship with you. But Saul pleads with him again. In verse 30, Saul replied, I've sinned, but please honor me. Honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Why did Saul want to go worship the Lord? He wanted to worship the Lord so that people would see him with Samuel, who had been the judge of Israel before. He was like the past president of the country. He, Saul was highly respected. I mean, Samuel was highly respected, highly regarded. And Saul wants to say, I want people to see me with you so they'll think I'm a good guy, so they'll honor me. I'll go worship the Lord. Why? What's his motivation? To honor himself. What a disease. This cancerous love of honor for ourselves. That couldn't be us, could it? We'd never do something like that. And yet I think of Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says this. Jesus speaking to disciples, followers of his. Now there was a great crowd there, but it says in chapter 5, verse 1, that this is a sermon on the mount. It says he went up on a mountain and his disciples came to him and he spoke to them. And so chapter 6 is addressed to disciples. People are following him. And this is what he says in chapter 6, verse 1, rather than misquoted or blunder in my paraphrase. Let me just read it. Be careful. If you have the ESV or New American Standard, it says, beware, be on guard, look out, there is a hidden danger. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. That's a danger for me as a pastor. If I survive this sermon and somebody comes up to me after it's over and say, Tom, that was really good. What am I going to do? Yeah, well, you know, I brought the mail today. It was good. There is this craving in all of us to preach or to teach or to serve for our own honor. Jesus said, be on guard, be careful, beware. First of all, he said, beware of giving gifts to the poor. What a noble thing, but be careful. Don't do it to be seen by men. Be careful about praying. What's wrong with praying? Not a thing. But be careful, lest you pray in such a way to be seen by men, to do it publicly. Be careful about fasting, he said. Don't do it to be seen by people. Don't do it in such a way that everyone will know. Boy, I don't have any energy today, man. I'm fasting, been fasting for about the condition of our country. It's a fine thing to pray. It's a fine thing to give. It's a fine thing to fast. But be careful, because we can do those in all of our service for the Lord, like Saul, to be honored by people. So we have to be on guard. That's the heart driven by selfish ambition. We want our own fame. We want popularity. We want honor among men. What's the antidote? First of all, And I remind you all of this. The antidote is first, 
salvation. Christ living in us. It's not enough for us to try to do better on our own. That only produces self-righteousness at best. We trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. But then, and we say like David, Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When we trust in Jesus Christ, he does create in us a new heart, a new capacity to live for his honor and his glory and his fame and his will. But we have to have an ongoing battle with this part of us, this flesh, not the body, but this inner disposition that wants to exalt and honor ourselves. We have to fight against it. And I think of what David himself prayed in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, where he said, Search me, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Well, that's a picture of selfish ambition. And we all have to fight against it. But now let's consider this man, David, a man who is driven by a heart for God. So turn just two chapters over to 1 Samuel 17, the familiar story of David and Goliath. We're not going to go into a whole lot of details, but just consider this one honor, how in this chapter and throughout the rest of the book and through all the Psalms you see in David, a man who is driven by a heart for God. It's a rather grisly passage, but let's read it anyway. It's scripture. 17 verse 45 through 47. Goliath has come out to fight against him. Goliath who used to come and stand for 40 days every day, standing out in with his army behind him and Saul and his army across this ravine, and he would shout defiance and taunts. Send a man to fight with me, he would say. I defy the armies of Israel. If you kill me, we're your servants. If I kill your representative, your best man, you're our slaves. Send me a man. And, and it says that Saul and his army, when, when Goliath came back, would run in fear. And then David shows up, and he hears this taunt, and he goes, is it, is, is it, are we going to let him say that? Are we going to let him do that? And eventually he goes out to face Goliath. And this is what he says in this interchange between, between David and Goliath, starting in chapter 17, verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here, your enemies, my own people, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. You see the, the faith and the passion.
passion of a man with a heart for God. He is driven not by self-exaltation, but a desire for God's interest, for God's glory. Just a couple of places I want to direct your attention in this same chapter. Look at David's testimony, first of all, in verse 37, chapter 17, verse 37. When he's brought before the king, Saul, we already met him. Saul's not willing to fight Goliath because he just sizes the situation up and says, Goliath is bigger than me, he's stronger than me, he's better armed than me, he's a better warrior than me. If all I got is me against him, I can't do it. And David comes in and says, I'll go and fight him. And Saul says, you can't fight him. You're only a youth. You're just a boy. He's, I don't know how old he was. Probably the age of probably you guys sitting right down here. And David says this. I was tending my father's sheep, and a lion or a bear would come out and take one from the herd, and I'd go out after him. In other words, that's my job. I'm a shepherd. Those are my father's sheep. I've got to go get them. I'm going to defend them. And the lion or the bear would rise up against me, and I'd, I'd fight back and kill them. And then he says this, verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. The Lord. It's not my strength. It's not my ability. It's not even my experience. It's God who has who is the source of my past success, who's been my deliverer in the past, and he will help me still. That's his testimony. All my success, all my protection, all my blessing is on account of the Lord. He gives God the credit. He gives God the credit. Second thing you see about David, that's, that's his testimony. Second thing, I notice David's concern. In verse 36, let's see, 36, I'm sorry, I think I wrote down the wrong verse. Oh, yes, verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Three times David brings that up. Verse 26, he says it. David asked the men standing near him, who, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? David's concern is this guy's taunting God when he taunts us because we are his army. It's as though he says, we're God's covenant people. God made it an agreement with us that we would be his and he would be our God and we would serve him and worship him and he would defend us and provide for us and fight on our, on our behalf. God is our king. He is our commander. Why are we running from this Philistine? God was being dishonored and God's people were being disgraced. And God's people were not trusting in the Lord. They were not seizing this opportunity to exalt the living God. And David said, we can't let this continue. That was his burden. That was his concern. That's what troubled him. Not the fear of danger, but what troubled him was, this guy's taunting God's people and God himself. And I can't stand it. 
It's a heart for God, a heart for God's honor, a heart for God's people. The third thing I see about David and his heart for God is this. Look at David's confidence. We read it already in verse 45, but it says, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Here's what you've got, Goliath. You've got a sword. You've got a javelin. You've got a spear. You've got, he, had a, he had a shield bearer, a guy that walked out in front of him holding his portable wall. You've got all that, Goliath. Goliath had also called down curses by the name of his pagan gods on David. Now, yeah, you've got your gods too, he might have said. But I have the Lord, and that's enough. You can say, well, he had, a, he had his staff, he had his sling, he had five smooth stones. But ultimately, he says, I come against you in the name of the Lord. That's my confidence. Is God himself. I have the Lord Almighty. I come against you in his name. That expression, in the name of the Lord, when you use the name of the Lord or when David used that, he was saying, by all that God is and all that he has said, that's my confidence. I belong to him. I am serving him. I come in his name. I am seeking his interest and his honor. And so I'm confident that he's going to help me. You are his enemy, and I'm one of his people, and you are defying his people and his name, and I am going to resist you and fight against you for his glory. That's David's confidence. Is that our confidence, that we know the Lord, that we know his faithfulness, his care, we know his character and his promises, and we are counting on them? Finally, look at David's passion in verse 46 and verse 47. Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. That was David's passion. I want the world to know that there's a God in Israel, that this God is great and awesome, that he can, he can take a shepherd boy with a sling and a couple of stones and bring down the mightiest warrior. That God is, I want the world to know that God is faithful to defend his people, that he is trustworthy. I want the world to know that he is real, that he is alive, that he acts on behalf of his people. That was his passion. That's what drove David. That was his heart for God. He wanted God to get the credit for his success. He was troubled when he saw God's name and God's reputation and God's people dragged down. He had confidence that God was his help and strength, and he wanted God to be proclaimed. He didn't want a monument in his own honor. He wanted God's honor, God's fame to spread throughout the whole earth. And consider this. 3,000 years ago, this happened. In a country, a small country far, far away, not a galaxy far, far away, a country far, far away. And we are still talking about it, the greatness of God, because of what David trusted God to do. And we aren't the only ones telling this story around the world today. You expect that somebody somewhere in most every continent is proclaiming the greatness of God. David got his wish. He got what he wanted most, to see God honored. That's 
what I long for my heart to be. That's what I want my ambition to be, for God to be honored in my life. That's what I want for you. I know I would reflect many of our sentiments, many of our desires. We want for God to be honored above all else in our life, with our words, in our service, in our day-to-day living. And the way that can happen is if God will, in an ongoing, regular way, work in us that which is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. Just to close, let me give you some practical suggestions of how to cultivate and maintain a heart for God. To cultivate and maintain a driving ambition, motivation for God's honor. First step, there, there are probably other things you could, you could add to this, but I'm just going to give you three. First, continual thanksgiving. Continual thanksgiving. We need to cultivate a habit of recognizing and honoring God for his help, for his blessing, for his care. To constantly recognize that he is good, that he is faithful, that he is at work. We ought to ask God to give us eyes to see his daily blessings, whether they be spiritual or material. In his book, Then Sings My Soul, a collection of hymns and hymn stories by Robert Morgan, he writes this. On the day when, he, uh, when, he, when his featured hymn is Count Your Blessings, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. I won't sing it. You should be applauding right now. It was written by Johnson Oatman. He wrote it for young people in his day. It may sound old-fashioned, but it was up to date in about 1896 or something like that. But he wanted to teach young people to be grateful. He wrote that song, Count Your Many Blessings. But this is what Rob Morgan says in his notes. It's impossible to be thankful and to be, at the same time, grumpy, cantankerous, or critical. It's impossible to be thankful at the same time that you're grumpy, cantankerous, and critical. And I would add one thing. It's impossible if you're giving thanks to God sincerely, genuinely, to be driven by selfish ambition. Because we're thinking about him and considering him. So we ought to develop a habit of being thankful. I caught myself recently being, doing way too much grumbling. So Becky and I have started trying throughout the day, but especially at the end of the day, just to say, what do we have to be thankful for today? What do we have to be thankful for? We do that because we need it, but also it reminds us to honor the Lord. Simple thing. The New Testament echoes that, by the way. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The second practical step is this. Surrender to Christ. Surrender your life. I remember somewhere along the line getting the impression that that was something I could do one time and have it settled. And I, I can remember the place when someone suggested do a once-for-all surrender to Jesus Christ. And I was there at Campus Crusade for Christ headquarters at San Bernardino, California. And, uh, and I said, that's what I want, Lord. I want to be yours for all my life. 
And I meant it, but I've discovered that it's something that I have to renew and maintain day after day. That's just a reality because new things come up. New things come up, come up where I'm faced with decisions and options and choices. And what do I have to do but say, Lord, I want your will to be done. That's what Jesus prayed in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. And I have to restate that and renew that day after day. Not my will, but yours be done. There's a New Testament parallel to that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. The Apostle Paul was in prison. His future was uncertain. He thought that he probably was going to be released, but he wasn't sure. But this is what he said in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 20 and 21. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He was able to say, whatever you want, Lord. You want me to live? Wonderful, I'll serve you. You want me to die? Wonderful, I'll go to be with you. But I trust that whatever you do, whether you give me success or suffering, release or execution, I'm yours. Just give me this one thing. Be exalted in my life. Don't let me fail you. Don't let me dishonor you. May Jesus Christ be praised through what you choose to do with me. And that's easy to, it's easy for those words to come out of my mouth to say, surrender to Christ, give it all to him, give yourself to whatever he would have you do, whatever he would choose to do with you. But the reality is when he pass, causes us to pass through difficult times and suffering, we want to get out of the deal sometimes. But he is trustworthy even if he causes us to pass through trials and suffering. He's trustworthy. He, he is good. God is great. God is good. No matter how circumstances look. So surrender to Christ completely, daily. The final thing. In order to maintain this heart for God, this passion for his honor, we need constant communication with our God. Constant communication. It, Trivia question here, how many of the 150 psalms did David write, or how many are attributed to him? I didn't know until I Googled it, but so don't feel embarrassed. Anybody want to take a shot? Was that? I think it's 75, but there's some debate because 77 are attributed to David, and then there are two that don't have his name up above them. But in the New Testament, it says that David's, David wrote them. So it could be 75 or 77. Good guess. Good answer. Did you Google that real quick? All right, all right. <laughs> 77 Psalms, half of them. So you conclude from that what? David just couldn't, couldn't he just loved to write. He was just a poet, Right? No, I, I, you could conclude that, but I, I would conclude another thing. 
in all of life, in everything that came his way, David communicated about it with the Lord. He turned to the Lord time and time again. Thirteen of the Psalms that he wrote have some kind of a uh, some kind of note at the top. Here are some of the things just to let you know what was going on that may have caused the writing of that psalm. In Psalm 57, he wrote because he had fled from Saul and was hiding in a cave. Interesting. Psalm 54, when the Ziphites, his own countrymen, ratted him out. They told Saul where he was hiding so that Saul came to try to find him and kill him. Psalm 18, it says, he wrote this psalm when the Lord delivered him from all his enemies. When finally, the enemies were conquered. Saul wasn't trying to kill him anymore. Psalm 51, he wrote it when Nathan the prophet came and said, David, you've sinned against God by taking Bathsheba, the wife of, uh, my mind went blank, Uriah the Hittite, you've sinned against God. Even then, David turns to the Lord in repentance. With, in, in all of life, whether it's God's blessings, which produce praise and joy and thanksgiving, or trials, which produce cries for help and mercy, or confusion, where he just pours out his heart and, say, and says, God, where are you? How long is this going to continue? Why did this happen? What are you doing, Lord? He pours it all out to the Lord. and That's what we need to do if we're going to have a heart for God, is to tell it all to him. To make it our constant habit Everything that comes our way, whether we're feeling good or feeling lousy, whether it's a great day or a sad day, to tell the Lord and then to trust Him. That's what we do to stay close. I don't have grandchildren, so I don't get to close with an illustration about grandchildren, but I do have a dog. I'll tell a dog story. Our dog, Zoe, has a strong hunting instinct. And I've noticed this. If she gets even as far away from me, Lauren Mackey, to you, if something distracts her, a scent that she gets on, or she sees a squirrel, or she sees a rabbit, or she sees a UPS truck, she's going after them. But if I am right there down with her, she's right beside me, and I see her, she perks up, and I say, Zoe, no, stay. Ah, that's my key word, ah. <laughs> Same thing I say with my kids, ah. No, stay, stay. If I'm this close, she will stay. If she gets away from me, I can yell, I can whistle. I will not whistle for you because I've got a pretty strong whistle. If I put my fingers to my mouth, I can whistle loud. It doesn't matter. If that dog sees something, a squirrel or a rabbit or a chipmunk or a UPS truck, she's going after it because I'm not close enough to have her detention. There's something else she wants more. But if she's close to me, she wants my approval, apparently, or something, more than she wants to go after the other things. So what we have to do is stay continually close to the Lord, and that's maintained by constant communication telling it all to the Lord, and then hearing from him through his word day by day, week by week as we gather together. Maintain that nearness to God.
How is it that David, the man after God's own heart, eventually drifted away? Just little by little, day by day, he drifted where he didn't hear God's voice, the voice of his word, the voice of conscience speaking to him anymore. Thankfully, he came back. But I appeal to you and to myself, maintain a heart for God. Let that be what drives you. I want us to pray together. Kevin is going to play, and uh, I want to give, it, give you a time for reflection where you are, or if you want to come, and maybe you need to come and surrender. Maybe there's something that has tripped you up, and you recognize, I've been seeking my own honor. Or maybe you just want to renew that commitment. I want your will, your honor, above all else. Maybe there's something else you just need to address with the Lord, and we want to give you time to seek Him. Father, speak to us. Draw us nearer to yourself. Work in us that which is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together now.